Well, good morning, Rocky Peak. Great to see you again. I um, want to welcome you, whether it's here or over in our ridge. A uh, couple of things before we get started today. Uh, we're going to go into our time of teaching. Inside your program is a message note sheet. It's green and white. If you're brand new, you may not know that. You want to take it out. You definitely want to follow along. But I just want to give you a heads up that next week we're doing something very special. Uh, if you've been a long time here at Rocky Peak, you know it's very rare that we have outside guests come in, in our teaching time. Um, but about three or four years ago, we, we did that. Um, we had a, a man named Alan Faddling come. You may remember, if you were here, we were over in the Interim Worship Center um, back then. It was in August. And uh, uh, Alan actually used to be a pastor here when Jesus was here. Um, it was like, it was long before I came, so you know it was a long time ago. Uh, and, but anyway, he's, he's very close friends with uh, Dave Cox, one of our senior pastors. And so uh, uh, over the years, they've kept up, and Alan is now, in the last many years, doing his own ministry. And it's kind of the ministry that focuses on spiritual formation, personal growth, that kind of thing. And so about three or four years ago, he wrote a book called The Unhurried Life. Anyone need that? Right? So, uh, we brought him in, and what we did is, we, instead of our normal teaching, we just interviewed him about the concepts in the book. And it was very positive, really helpful, very well-received. Well, recently, Alan finished a second book. Um, and so we're going to bring him back next weekend. And so he's going to be here uh, on our stage. Dave will be interviewing him again on some of the concepts. And it's really taking some of the similar pro uh, concepts about this unhurried life. How do you live uh, life in an intentional way so you have the right rhythms, rest, restoration, time with God, but other things get put in together. And so it's a very important topic. And it's also a topic to fit well with a follow-up for today, but also prepare us for the summer. Uh, when, when seasons uh, often change and new ebbs and flows. And so I want to encourage you for that. If you'll be interested in buying his new book next week, you'll be able to get that at the bookstore. But also, often there's a big line when you have someone like this. Um, if you want to give him to sign it, you can do that. So uh, if you want to bring cash to buy that book, kind of a heads up, uh, no big deal. But if you do, it might save your time because we'll have a separate kind of cash line. All right. So uh, anyway, so make sure you get that on your calendar next weekend. And the following week, we'll continue on with our current series. So just a heads up on that. Now, uh, we're going to go into our time of teaching right now and see if you guys are ready to go. I'm ready to jump in. You guys ready to go? Okay, let's, uh, let's pray together. God, we're just excited to be here and to continue to pursue you as we try to peel back the layers and see you in, with fresh eyes uh, as we go through this series and to see you as you were, not kind of as we were necessarily raised or are kind of our own cultural ideas or whatever, but that we come to see the true Jesus Get some, capture some new images. So I pray that today will be another step in that process. God, I pray that your spirit would be all over me as I teach, that my, my words would be clear. I pray for us as a church that you'd gather us under your wings and you'd be our teacher right now. You'd open our eyes to see wonderful things from your law. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, our story starts today um, on a, uh, like a, a fresh fall morning. Um, this is a day that he'll never forget. Um, I don't know if you remember the first day you went to school. Um, I, I don't remember that. Schools weren't invented then. Um, but I remember when my daughters went to school, their first day of school. I remember my, my oldest daughter, her first day. And for those of you parents who have gotten through this, you know how traumatic this is, right? You take this child that you've invested in for four or five years, you've protected from the world, you've put so much into them, you love them so much, and now you're turning them over to strange people uh, to, to raise for you. And uh, even though... Uh, we went, our daughters started at a Christian school. You know, are they really Christian? You know, so you don't really know. And so I just remember that, you know, her getting dressed and the pictures in front of the car and the house. And it was a day I'll never forget. And so this is, this is his first day. 
Um, he's growing up in a small town, and uh, he's the oldest child in his family. And so he, he has younger uh, sisters and brothers, but none of them have been to school. So he, he, hasn't, he hasn't learned from his older siblings, but his mom has done everything she can to, to prepare him, to tell him what to expect. But he's excited. He knows some, has some older friends in the neighborhood. They've gotten to school, so he's talked to that. But he'll never forget as he leaves the house that day, they walk through their little town, mom and dad with him. They come up to, um, to, to the, the school, and he goes through the door for the very first time. And as he comes in, that, that image will ever be uh, kind of an impression, just a strong impression on his mind. He'll never forget that picture walking in. Some kids he knows, some kids he doesn't. And they say goodbye, and he's alone. And then all of a sudden, the teacher comes in. Well, today, uh, we're continuing this series that we have been in now for the last couple months. Uh, if you're brand new, want to welcome you. It's called Unfiltered, Capturing a True Image of Jesus. And the core concept of this series is that, um, that I think most people who've studied this, historians, social commentators, and so on, would say that, that really that Jesus of Nazareth, more than any other person in human history, has influenced the course of human history. So it doesn't really matter whether you're a believer or not, that just, just from a naturalistic standpoint, that Jesus is now the most influential person in human history. But the irony here is here in our Western culture, it seems like with each passing year, we actually know less and less about who Jesus really was. And so what happens is we tend to recreate Jesus in our own image based on our upbringing, what we've heard, uh, cultural stereotypes, cultural trends, and so on. We all want to claim Jesus. And so our goal in this series is to go back to one of the earliest and most important um, biographies uh, that documents the life and teaching of Jesus. We call it the Gospel of Matthew. Um, to see if we can capture some new images and take off some old filters of, uh, as we give you a truer image of who Jesus was. So if you were here last week, we were in Matthew chapter 3. We watched as Jesus came from Nazareth, his hometown, traveled several days down to the south of the country, uh, down to the Jordan River uh, near the Dead Sea, where uh, this, this amazing prophet who sprung up, uh, first prophet in hundreds of years, has sprung up, and he's speaking for God. He's calling the nation to repentance. And his message is profound. His message is the long-promised kingdom of God that's been promised by the prophets. It's about to break into time and space. And so you need to get ready. You need to get right with God. You need to make sure your heart is clear. So he's baptizing people for repentance in the Jordan River. And so with hundreds and thousands of other people, Jesus of Nazareth comes to be baptized. And as he comes out of the water, you remember three things happened, right? That First of all, the heavens were torn open, which is a big historic event. This doesn't happen very often in the Bible. Remember at Mount Sinai, a similar thing happens. So something big is happening. And secondly, God is going to speak. And God is going to identify Jesus of Nazareth. So God is just the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is speaking. And he's identifying Jesus of Nazareth as the son, the Davidic son who would one day come to be king, Messiah, over the nation. And so he got, God speaks this word, and then at the same time, just like the kings of old were anointed by the Holy, or anointed with oil by the prophets to, to launch their ministry, so Jesus of Nazareth is anointed not by a prophet, but by God himself with the gift of the Holy Spirit, who's going to empower him to bring in his kingdom, just like David of old. And so last week, we, 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 we saw that happen. We left it there. We're picking up the story there today. 
And so uh, if you have your Bibles, you want to open up to, to Matthew chapter 4, and we're going to see if we, today we can do some more deconstruction on the life of Jesus and uh, capture some new images. And so there in your note sheet, you have a section called The First Battle, uh, The Wilderness Revisited. And so uh, after he's baptized, uh, what, what happens next is the Holy Spirit, who's now baptized, is, is going to begin to lead him in a very direct way. And he's going to lead him to go out into the wilderness of Judea. Now, for those of you in Israel, you remember the Dead Sea area. But if you've not been there, don't think desert like sand dunes. Um, it, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a very harsh, barren land, uh, just hardly any plant life. Um, but it's like, uh, kind of like mountains and bluffs and uh, this huge valley. And it's just very rugged land. It's a land that in the, in the winter will become below freezing. Uh, at night, in the summer, it will reach temperatures of 120. It's a very rugged, barren, dry land. And so this, this is where the... So, so after he's baptized, the Spirit catches the Spirit, not Jesus, but the Spirit is going to lead Jesus out into this wilderness just like the nation of Israel was led out into the wilderness after the Exodus. We'll come back to that, right? So uh, God had once led his son, the nation of Israel, out in the wilderness. He's now leading his son uh, back into the wilderness, calling revisited. All right, so uh, as he goes out there, let's see what happens. So in verse 1, it says, So Jesus was led by the Spirit, make sure you catch that, into the wilderness uh, to be tempted by the devil. Now, uh, remember last week we talked about this, and when we come to the life of Jesus, we need to deconstruct some common images that we care. You know, the Bible teaches that Jesus is both 100% God and 100% man, but for whatever reason, there are reasons, I won't go into it, I think in our current mindset as followers of Jesus, we tend to see him as 100% God and not really man. And so what, what happens is, is that we tend to see him, like I said last week, much like Clark Kent. You remember that we, we see Jesus as like Clark. In other words, Clark Kent looks normal to everyone around him. In fact, he acts normal, but he's really not normal at all. And so we send Jesus like this. He acts like he's human, but he's really not. He really has this S on his chest under his rabbi's tunic, right? Uh, and so um, we, we talked about this, that often we see Jesus like an actor in a play that he knows his lines. He knows where the story is going. He knows every step of the way, what's going to happen next. So he's just kind of playing out his part. And what we saw last week is that is just not true. We saw last week from uh, Luke chapter 2 that when Jesus was 12 years old, we'll talk about this later, he goes to the temple. He's in a learning posture. He's discussing the word with the, the rabbis. He's asking questions. He's listening to their answers. He's, he's learning. He's growing. We saw that he grew in wisdom. In other words, that his wisdom became more just like a normal human process as you would grow in wisdom as you grow older. And so that's very important as we approach this passage today, because for those of you who are longtime Christians, I honestly think we think of it like this. Jesus gets baptized. He goes out in the desert. He knows he's going to be there for 40 days. He knows at the end of 40 days, he's going to be tempted by Satan three times. He knows what the temptation is going to be. So he's kind of sitting in his lounge chair in this really hot spot, just kind of waiting for Satan to show up and like, okay, it's about that time. He should be coming. Here's what he's going to say. Here's what I'm going to say. And I want to deconstruct that today. And I want to suggest that it would seem, uh, it'd seem much more likely that, that Jesus didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, we, we, we're going to see today that it wasn't his idea to go into the wilderness. 
it was the Spirit's idea to go in the wilderness. It's very likely he doesn't know how long he's going to be there. He doesn't know when the attack's going to come. He doesn't know how it's going to end. What he knows is he's being led by the Holy Spirit to go out into the desert. And he is going to fast. He, he feels called to fast as to time to prepare for this mission of being the king of Israel. Now, it's interesting because um, we're going to see that Jesus fasts for 40 days. Now, that may uh, conjure up other images in your mind. Moses fasted for 40 days at Mount Sinai. Elijah fasted for 40 days. Uh, so we're seeing some biblical patterns here. Um, but I think often we tend to look at this, and, and again, this is part of the Superman effect. We tend to look at Jesus like it probably wasn't that hard for him. He just kind of pushed a button and said, uh, stop the hunger thing, right? And he's just there. It's like it's just supernatural. And we're not told specifically, but there's nothing in the test that suggests this fast is supernatural. Um, I've not fasted 40 days, right? But I have fasted over 30 days. In fact, when I came to Rocky Peak uh, a couple years before that, I thought God called me to go on a long fast. I thought it would be 40 days. My wife, I asked her to pray, and she said, I think you're right to be doing this, but I don't think it's been quite, quite right. And she was right. And she said, I don't think it's been quite that long. But I ended up fasting over 30 days. And so here's what I know, is that from medically speaking, you can fast that long. You get very weak. You get very tired. I experienced that. It's hard to walk. has to be intentional and so on. But you can do this. But at the end of the time, you're going to be extremely tired. You're going to be, and, and many medical experts would say, when, when that hunger really kicks in at the end of a long fast like that, that is like the body saying it's starting, like it's starting to go into starvation mode. So what we're going to see today is that Jesus is out in the desert. We don't know what time of year it was. But if it was in the winter or spring, the mornings are going to be really cold. If it's in the summer, you're being having a temperature as high as 120. It is a tough place. When I was fasting, not like that. Right? It was interesting, too. During that fast, that's when the Lord told me that in 18 to 24 months, I was going to go through a major life change. And that's what ended up being fulfilled here. And so this was a time of preparation for him. As, as, as God had prepared the nation of Israel, taking him out in the wilderness, this was a time of preparation for Jesus to prepare. And so what I want you to catch is, uh, there in your note sheet, I put Mark's account of this. And I want you to note of this. In Mark's account, he gives us a little bit more information. And this is the, what he says. The spirit immediately, what's the next word? Drove him. That is a great translation. The language in Mark is very much stronger than the language in Matthew. Now, Matthew says he led him. Well, Mark says he actually drove him, compelled him. So here's what I need to catch. This was not Jesus' idea. This was the Spirit's idea. Jesus was listening and following. And secondly, he's going out in the wilderness. Remember what we learned about the wilderness the last couple of weeks? The wilderness in the life of Israel was a place of connection with God. It was a place in their history where God had led them and met them. It's had special connotations. And number three, it says he was in there uh, for 40 days. And catch the next verb tense, being tempted, which is a great translation. In the, the Greek, it's a present tense. So in Mark's account, he seems to give us a window that this wasn't just like 40 days of like kickback and do whatever. And then a big temptation comes up 40 days. 
it just seems to be more that he was there for 40 days being tempted. There was an ongoing spiritual battle going on. So what we're seeing today in these final three temptations, we're seeing a final assault. So think of it like a military. Think, think of it like, think of it like a, a village that's under siege, and for 40 days there's been a siege, and finally, like, can we beat this thing or not? We're doing one final big push. We're going to throw everything we have. And that's kind of what you have. I think of it like uh, on the 4th of July when you have fireworks, and you have like 20 minutes of fireworks, and then at the end you have the grand finale. And what we're seeing today is the final assault to take to capture the city of Jesus' life. And so, uh, and so uh, let's going to watch and see what happens. Now, to understand this temp- these temptations, we need to understand something about Israel's history. Remember, in Matthew's gospel, his whole point is that Jesus of Nazareth is the fulfillment of the story of Israel. That everything in Israel's past has been leading up to this key character that's going to bring the whole story of Israel and the human race to its fulfillment. And so what we're going to see today is that we're going to see parallels between the nation of Israel and their life experience and, and, the, and, and Jesus. You may remember this from the last couple of weeks I mentioned this. But in Exodus chapter 4, when God sent Moses to set Israel free from the wilderness, you remember what he said in chapter 4? He said, uh, Moses, go to Pharaoh and tell him that Israel is my firstborn son. Remember that? He said, and tell him to let my firstborn son go into the wilderness where he can worship me. And when Israel went into the wilderness, that was initially a very romantic uh, period of their relationship with God. Great memories. But very rapidly, they began to rebel against God. And as a result of that rebellion, they died. That whole generation died in the wilderness. 40 years of wandering, and they died in the wilderness. And so the question is, why did God lead them into the wilderness? And the answer is, as we'll see today, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, we'll read it in a minute, that God is very clear, the reason I led the nation of Israel into the wilderness was two things, to test their heart to see what they were made of, to whether they would trust me and listen and follow or not, and to teach them a very important spiritual lesson, that the key to your future as a nation, this is critical, is you learn to listen and follow my word. In other words, in the same way that we need food to survive in our bodies, we need God to survive in our spirits. And the way God feeds us and empowers and speaks is through his word. And so God says, I took him into the wilderness to humble them, to take him into a situation where there was no food, there was no water, they were completely dependent on me, they were just following as I led them, and the question is, would they continue to trust me under those harsh circumstances that I would take care of them, or would they rebel and refuse and go back? And of course, we know the story, they rebel. So here's the story, here's the picture. God takes his firstborn son into the wilderness to test them, to see what's in their heart. Will they learn to listen and follow? If you remember that account, the number one reason they typically rebelled was because of a lack of food or a lack of water. Now, God is taking his firstborn son back into the wilderness like Israel. He's their representative. He's their king. He's taking him back into his, to, to test him to see what's in his heart. Will he listen and fail, or listen and follow, or will he fail? And catch this, what's at stake today in this event is the entire future of the kingdom of God. If Jesus fails today, we will not be here. 
Everything depends on this first battle. If he doesn't win the first battle, he can't win the others. And so with that in mind, let's start walking through this. So again, verse 1. So Jesus, he's led by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit's leading him. He's following. He goes in the wilderness, a place of intimacy with God, to be tempted by the devil, a place of testing to prepare him. And after 40 days and 40 nights, like Moses, like Elijah, he was hungry. The hunger really kicks in. And so at this point, the tempter, the enemy, the Satan comes to him and says, okay, so if you are the son of God, so remember, he had just been anointed by the spirit. The father had just spoken, you are my son. And so he says, if that's really true, then it's time for you to kind of start using that power and start uh, uh, making things happen. You're really hungry. You're in the desert. There's these little stones here that look like loaves of bread. Why don't you just kind of use that power? If you really, if this is really true, then why don't you do that? But notice what Jesus says. He is going to quote from Deuteronomy 8. And he says, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, let's set this up. There in your note sheet, I put Deuteronomy 8. Deuteronomy uh, is the final addresses of Moses before the nation of Israel crosses the Jordan into the promised land. It comes at the end of 40 years. Moses is about to die. He can't go with them. Final kind of messages, think of them like sermons, he's giving to them to prepare them to succeed in the promised land. So Deuteronomy is wilderness teaching. Jesus is in the wilderness, again. And so here's what, um, here's what it says in Deuteronomy 8. Uh, Moses says to the nation of Israel, remember how the Lord, remember Lord, all caps is Yahweh, remember how Yahweh your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years, Why? To humble and to test you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. Will you trust me, even in the midst of this very harsh thing, will you trust me to provide for you? And he said he humbled you, causing you to hunger and then uh, then feeding you with manna. One of the values of fasting is that it humbles you. Uh, most of us have a natural tendency toward pride and arrogance. Just try skipping two meals. You can feel strong, you feel healthy, you can conquer the world. Just go a day without food. And all of a sudden, you begin realizing how dependent you are. You begin to realize uh, that you're not what you thought you were. And so God leads the nation of Israel into the wilderness to humble them, to teach them their dependence on him. And here's what he's trying to teach them. If you're going to succeed in this promised land, you need to learn to hang on my words. You need to learn to listen. It's been a key to your success. So he says, he humbled you, causing you to hunger and feeding with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that people do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth. So what's he saying? He's saying, as human beings, we are both physical and spiritual beings. We spend most of our time thinking about the physical. And so like, the physical is good. It's a gift of God. Uh, physical uh, 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 pleasures, physical gifts, they're good. Food is a good thing. We need food. That's what we are obvious about. You know, every couple hours our stomach reminds us. What we're bad about is we're realizing we're spiritual creatures, spiritual beings, and we need spiritual food. That we need our relationship with God is the most important thing. And if it comes to choosing, it's more important to choose our relationship with God than even food itself. 
So he said, this is, the, this is the lesson that God was trying to teach you. The key to your success is hanging on my words, listening and following. And so now Jesus is in the wilderness like Israel. Satan comes to him, the temptation, and Jesus instantly goes back to wilderness wanderings of Israel. And he said, no, this is the lesson God was trying to teach our nation back at the very beginning. Now catch this. I think this is what's going on. Jesus is thinking like this. The Spirit led me here. The Spirit led me to fast. It's not my job to take matters into my own hands and solve this issue. If the Father led me here, I will not eat again until he provides. And so Jesus is winning where Israel, where they went into rebellion over food and wouldn't trust God. He is winning. And so Satan goes on then, and it's like, okay, well, if you want to use Bible, uh, I can use Bible. And, um, you know, if that's your basis. And so um, in verse 5, the devil takes him to the holy city. Now, what city is the holy city? Yeah, Jerusalem, right. And so he takes him to the temple. Remember, it's a huge complex, three football fields by five football fields, huge fortress walls around it. But in the, in the back part of it is the temple. And the, the temple was 15 stories high. It was 150 feet high. And so... He takes him to the top of the temple. Now, we don't know if this is literally kind of transported him or whether it's more likely visionary, as we'll see in the third temptation. But uh, anyway, he challenges, if you are the son of God, uh, why don't you just, you know, jump off, just take a leap, uh, throw yourself down, because it's written, and he quotes from Psalm 91, he will command his angels concerning you, and they'll lift you up your hands, and so they'll not strike your feet against a stone. And so this is just a promise in Psalm 91. It's a psalm about a righteous man and how if a righteous man trusts the Lord, he'll protect him. And so Satan basically says, well, you're the ultimate you know, righteous man. You're the son of God. So why don't you trust God and just take a leap and, uh, and, and God for sure will save you because you are, if you're the son of God, he's not gonna let you die, right? But Jesus sees in this a, another temptation. He, he sees in this that, Jesus has to learn to use the power that's available to him by the Holy Spirit under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. He can't just go out there and just do whatever he wants. He has to follow and listen to the Holy Spirit. And to do this would be to put God in a tough situation. To do this would be to say, hey, you have to save me because I'm like the Messiah. I can't save me. So it's like trying to force God's hand. It's like testing his goodness, testing his patience. And Jesus sees in this another lesson from the wilderness. So this time he's going to quote from Deuteronomy 6. And um, he sees that this was the attitude of the nation of Israel when they would test God's goodness. If you don't give us food or if you don't do something, we're going back. And so he quotes Deuteronomy 6. So in verse 7, Jesus says, well, it's also written, um, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And so this, that wouldn't be the right thing to do. So now third one, so the, the devil takes him to a very high mountain and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And this is why it seems to be visionary, because there's no mountain that you could see all this, right? So uh, probably a visionary experience. And there's splendor. And it's interesting because, um, you know, when I used to read this, probably like you, I just kind of like, okay, yeah, all the splendor and so on. You know, this last year, I've been doing so much research and reading and, and study of, of ancient Rome and the Roman Empire, that now when I read this, different images come to my mind. I see the city of Rome in my mind in all its glory. I see the second most important city, the, the city of Alexandria, founded by Alexander the Great, which was the kind of the head of Egypt at the time. 
just an incredibly beautiful, ornate city, powerful city. The, the library that had 700,000 manuscripts. I mean, it was just this amazing place. I see the third largest city in the empire, the city of Antioch, with uh, all of its gold and its wealth. And, and so um, it's now it's like there's a visionary thing. Remember, Tiberius Caesar is Caesar right now. He's over his empire. And basically what Satan is offering is to make Jesus Caesar. And if that happens, then think how he could change the world. Think how he would have the power to right wrongs. But of course, this was what Jesus' calling was as Messiah to be the king of the new, uh, of the new creation and to rule. But the path that was going to be required of him was a path of suffering. This was clear in the prophets to him. And so there was a a shortcut being offered. But think of the good you could do. You've grown up uh, as a Jewish uh, uh, blue-collar worker. You've grown up in a country where the Romans have oppressed and crucified your people. Uh, you've grown up in a country where there's brigands and outlaws throughout the land. You've run, grown up with the Roman Empire's this oppressive regime, and you could change all that. And scholars will disagree or, or uh, kind of argue over, is this, is this a real legit offer? Could he have delivered on this or not? But the point is, this is the offer. And so Jesus just cuts to the chase, and he realizes the heart of this. Um, so Satan says, he, uh, he said, uh, verse 9, all this I'll give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me, just kind of let me rule your life. And Jesus said, away from me, Satan, for it is written, and this is a quote from Deuteronomy 6 again, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. This goes to the heart of what it means to be a true Jew, to be a follower of Yahweh, is to come under his leadership. You are the top priority of my life. I give my worship. You're the ultimate value. I worship you. He says, out of here, Satan. And so at this point, uh, Satan, he's done this final assault on the city of Jesus, so to speak, and he realizes he's not going to win, and so he's going to withdraw now. And so in Matthew's account, what he says is the devil left him, and the angels came and attended. Notice that Jesus says, true, I will trust my father. He doesn't know how long this is going to last. He doesn't know there's going to be three, I don't think. I think that he's, he's not really sure. He just, he just knows he needs to listen and follow. Um, but once he does, the father actually comes in and supernaturally, like he did for Moses, like he did for Elijah, takes care of his needs. Now, it's interesting because um, I want you to look at your note sheet at how Luke describes this. Uh, in, in the end of uh, Luke's described, we looked at Mark earlier, in, at the end of the temptation, this is what Luke says. He says, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until when? An opportune time. Now, I want you to catch that. We're going to come back in two weeks and talk about temptation, and I, I, but I just want to put this on your radar right now, that you do understand this, right, that not all days are created equal. When it comes to our spiritual life, there are certain days that count more than other days. There are certain days of critical crossroads that your future hangs in the balance. There are certain days that are opportune times for the enemy. Satan waited till 40 days. This hunger was kicking in. He waited for the opportune time, and he's going to wait for the... But this is the first battle. In your life and my life, there are opportune times. We'll come back to that in a couple weeks. Um, but notice what happened. So Jesus returned to Galilee, back to the north, in the power of what? The Spirit. So, so catch this. He is anointed with the Spirit at his baptism. He is led by the Spirit. He listens and follows the Spirit. 
He wins his first major battle, and now he is going to return in the power of the Spirit. Same happens in our lives. When you listen and follow, you go through a time of testing, you pass it, you come out with new power. You come out, and so this, so what happens is where Israel was tested in the wilderness and they failed the test and they died in the wilderness. The Messiah, the representative of the nation, he listens and follows. And as a result, his future, as he moves into the future, God has for him, and he can now begin to bring the kingdom, you see? And so there's so much in this passage about the history of Israel, how Jesus represents the nation, uh, about temptation, about spiritual warfare. So we're going to come back in two weeks, look at the same passage again, and talk specifically about temptation and the lessons that we can learn from our older brother about how to respond to temptation, how to win in our lives. But today, as we are still kind of early in this series, I want to start today by focusing on something that just comes so clear here, and that is the role that the Word of God played in the life of Jesus. Because I, I think this is something, we really need some filters taken off here. We, we need to look at this through some fresh eyes that will kind of have the capacity to revolutionize our lives. In fact, I would say today that what we're going to be talking today is has the power to change your life forever, but you're going to have to be radically honest, all right? Now, I'm not asking you to be honest with who you're sitting next to. You can if you choose. Uh, or behind you, I'm not, not going to ask for a show of hands today. Um, this is not a guilt fest today. Uh, but what I'm saying is that today has the, the, the power to change your life, but you're going to have to be radically honest, and that may be scary for some of you. Right? You have to face some things that May, may raise questions you can't answer at this point in your life. And so I want to challenge you as we go into this time. So I want to talk about this relationship of Jesus and the Word and implications for us. So there in your note sheet is a section called The First Battle, Jesus and the Word. And what I want to ask to do is I want to ask two questions. I want to ask you two questions. Now, uh, when I first wrote this message, I had three questions. Um, and then I got rid of one, not because it was a bad question, just because I knew it would go too long. So what I've done, I'm only asking two of the three, but the third one I'm going to kind of sneak in there um, because it's just too good. So um, here we go. So question number one. The first question, and you, this may strike you as an odd question, just hang with me, but the question I want to start with today is how do you make decisions? Like when it comes to your life, how do you make decisions? Now I'm not talking about little decisions like Walmart versus Target. I'm not talking about that. Um, that's kind of a big decision, actually. But anyway, um, you know, I'm not Star Starbucks, coffee bean. Um, I'm not talking about McDonald's, Del Taco. I'm talking about major life decisions. Like when you have to make a decision about what do you believe about God and who God is in our relationship with God, and how that, how do you make that decision in the spiritual realm? Um, when you when you uh, when you make dating decisions, who to date, how to approach dating. Uh, how, how, do you, uh, uh, how do you make those decisions? If you're married, how do you approach your marriage? How do you decide this is the kind of marriage we should have? This is what my role should be. This is what my spouse's role should be. This is the way we should relate. Like, how do you do that? When you're raising kids, what is your authority structure? How do you decide how to raise your kids? When you're making financial decisions, what informs those decisions? When you're making priority decisions or work decisions, other words, major decisions in life that affect your future, how do you make those decisions? Sexuality, how do you decide sexual set? What's good, what's bad, what's right, what's wrong? How do you decide that? Now, it's an interesting question, and I think if you were to ask people in our culture today, you'd get many different answers. Like, we did a man-on-the-street interview. It'd be interesting, right? 
We, we can come to people and get asked. I think that some people would say, I do what I do because, I believe what I believe, because it's the way I was raised. Many people will say that. Maybe not about all their life, but about certain parts. It's the way I was raised. Um, and so, uh, so, so it has to do with uh, maybe it was a parent or a grandparent, but this is the way I was raised. Some people will base it on their nationality. That's the way I am. I'm Italian, you know? Um, some people will say, this is what I do. Uh, it's, it's what I do because uh, of role models in my life. And so maybe it was a school teacher that influenced you. I think for a lot of people today uh, that have gotten through maybe some college experience, it's like, well, this is what I was taught, and I used to think this, but now I think this because my eyes have been opened or whatever thing. So my, my professors, uh, did. I think for many people in our culture today, whether we're, it's, it's like uh, celebrities, uh, Oprah, what Oprah thinks, uh, you know, what Magic Johnson thinks, um, you know, what some kind of celebrity entertainment, uh, something, what some kind of magazine that you subscribe to, that, that for many of us. I think for many of us, it's cultural trends. Like, you, like for example, think of what a radical shift, like if I had told you 10 years ago that, hey, we're going to be, in 10 years, we're going to be having um, gender-neutral bathrooms everywhere you go. Like, what would you would have said? Like, that will never happen. Like, who would ever think it? And but, well, how did that happen? Was there some new research that came up? Was there some new facts? No, it's just cultural trend. Um, but I think the most common, uh, the, the most common answer that, that many would give, maybe you would give it too, is that we say, why do you believe this? Why do you do that? Why do you make this decision? We'd say, it just feels right to me. It just feels right, which more often than not, what it actually means is this is what my culture thinks. We just don't realize that. Because what seems right to you is usually a reflection of what people around you think is right. And when that changes, you'll change, right? So, so there's a lot of different ways we could answer. But what I want you to catch, if we were to ask Jesus of Nazareth, why do you do what you do? Why do you believe what you believe? He would go directly, do not pass go, he would go directly to the Hebrew scriptures. What we call the Old Testament. He, he, for Jesus, he believed the Hebrew scriptures were divinely inspired. Uh, he believed that they were the word of God that was not to be broken. Um, and, and so for Jesus, we're going to see this all through his life. So we're going to see it in his teaching. We're going to see it um, when he answers, responds to his critics. We're going to see it when he describes his life calling. We're going to see it as he explains the story of Israel. We'll see it after the resurrection when he takes his, his, his first believers, his first men back to, to, the, to the, law of the, the law and the prophets and the Psalms to explain the prophecies about his life. We're going to see it every step of the way. That as Jesus says in John 10.10, 10, this verse on your note sheet, but it's real quick. He said the scripture cannot be broken. For Jesus, the Hebrew scriptures were the living and abiding and authority word of God. And so what we see today is in the biggest crisis of his life to date. To date. They'll be bigger at Gethsemane. But today, the biggest at his weakest moment after 40 days of fasting, at the moment of greatest attack and identity attack, if you're really the son of God, identity being attacked, at the moment of greatest crisis, Jesus does not hesitate. He does not debate. He doesn't think about it. He doesn't discuss. He goes right to the Word. The Word is his ultimate authority. And what I want you to understand, if you want to understand first century Jesus of Nazareth, 
You have to understand this. Jesus is a Jew. Jesus is a Orthodox, Bible-believing Jew. He's been raised on the word. We'll talk about that more later. And for him, the word was his life. And so the question I have for you then is what is the word for you? How do you make decisions? What is your authority? And here's what I want to suggest. The way you can test this is by what you do in a crisis. It is very easy to deceive ourselves. It is very easy to say, oh, yeah, the Bible is the word of God for me. But you know what? You don't really know that until it's tested. You don't, know, you don't know it until the Bible says something that our culture completely disagrees with. And it's very unpopular. You don't know that until God asks you to take a step of obedience that makes no sense to you. You don't know that until there's a step of faith that the word of God requires you to take that seems like it will lead to disaster. So we don't really know what we believe until it's tested. He took Israel into the desert. God took Israel in the desert to test what was in their heart. They would have said when they first came out, God is our God. In fact, they did say that. About God is our God. We will listen and follow. But as the test came, what was revealed is they didn't really mean that. They didn't know their own hearts. What Jesus, we find out about Jesus, is the word was his authority in the midst of the test. So, so just, you know, getting practical. So, for example, um, so, like you see a couple, they're married, they're followers of Jesus, they claim to be Christians, whatever. And, and so, um, then they decide, hey, I think we're going to get a divorce. Or one of them decides we're going to get a divorce. And you say, well, why are you going to do that? You know, has, has someone been unfaithful in the marriage? Is there something you know, huge abusive situation going, oh, no, 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 we just, we just can't get along. We're just incompatible. We fight all the time. We've seen a couple, we just can't get along. And we just, we just can't deal with it anymore. Well, it's pretty clear in Scripture. There's two followers of Jesus. Number one, it's not, God doesn't want us to get a divorce. And number two, if we're followers of Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit who has the power to change us, to make all things possible. The only question is, do you believe it? If you believe it, you say Mary. If you don't believe it, you get a divorce, because that seems like an easy way out. You see what I'm saying? Now, I could go through this with finances, dating, sexual, we don't have time to give a million, but you get the point is that we don't find out what we really believe until it's tested. But here's what I want you to catch. What we do in these times of test determine our future. Because for Israel, they rebelled against the word. They didn't learn this, and they ended up dying in the wilderness. For Jesus, he banked his life on the word, and he came out in the power of the spirit, moved into his future. You see the difference? And so, here, so here's what happens in our lives, is that often we can't figure out why we're in the wilderness. And, but if you look back over our lives, you'd see critical decisions, moments of testing, where we didn't listen to the word. We listened to what Proverbs calls our own understanding. And as a result, we're in the wilderness. 
And so the first question I'm going to ask is that how do you make decisions? And again, this whole message today is very much a 40,000-foot level. What, what I'm, my goal here is, like, uh, is not to make anyone feel guilty. This is not, a, this is not about guilt. But we're gonna, there, or not. What this is, is just to understand how life works. And so you can do some self-diagnosis. Like if you go to a doctor, you can say, here's the situation. Here's what you've got. If you continue, here's what's going to happen. If you change, here's what's going to happen. He's not there to say you're a bad person. He's there to help you get better. And that's my role today. My, my, my thing is when I say, well, how dare you? Or what? I'm going to say, hey, this is, the, this is the reality. What you believe about the word is like one of the most important decisions in your life. Because it determines wilderness or it determines the power of the spirit. And so in your life, how do you make decisions? Number two, the second question, remember I'm going to sneak in a third. Uh, number two is, the question is, what is your priority? Now, what I mean by this is that when you study the life of Jesus, I think it becomes clear that the word was a huge priority in his life. So what I'm asking is, how big a priority is the word, knowing it, studying it, learning, meditating, memorizing, how big a priority? And again, no guilt here, right? Like, this is not... I'm not trying to make you feel bad. Like, it's just, we're just trying to learn together. Like, I, I feel like God's calling is on our church. Dre shared this a, a few weeks ago, and he's right on the money, that we have just been sensing as a leadership team that God is stirring us up to some new things as a church in terms of the word. Right? So, so what I'm doing is I'm bringing you along in this journey. I'm saying, hey, let's just, as, as, as I circle the wagons here, let's have an honest talk about where we're at as a church, where we're going, where you're at. There's no intent here to make you feel bad because you didn't read your Bible this week. That's not what this is about. What this is about is let's talk about how life works. Let's talk about who Jesus is. Let's talk about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Let's talk about how we move into our future in the power of the Spirit instead of being in the wilderness. Are, are you with me? So let's just kind of roll it. So, so for Jesus, this was a pri- The reason I say that is because for some of you, you start, the guilt starts kicking in. Oh, I haven't read my Bible in two weeks, and you don't even hear what I say next. I just want to remove that. We're friends here. I love you. You love me. We're brothers and sisters. We're just trying to grow together, right? So, so let's just kind of put aside that, and let's just kind of talk about how life works and who Jesus is and, and how we grow. So, uh, so when it comes to Jesus, what we're going to see is that for him, the word was a huge priority. Now, this, we need to deconstruct some images of Jesus, just like we did last week. Again, when it comes to the word, we tend to see him like Clark Kent or like an actor. I think when Jesus uh, quotes the word, we tend to think that somehow Jesus, because he was God, had a hard drive in his brain with every verse in the Bible. And on top of that, when he would quote a verse, he's like, oh, I remember when I said that to Jeremiah. That's cool, you know. Uh, But I don't think it's like that at all. We saw last week, right, that Jesus was a learner. Like age 12, he's, going, he's asking questions, he's learning, he's listening, he's growing in wisdom. And so what we're going to see today is I think that the pursuit of the word was a lifelong pursuit for Jesus. It's interesting, there's a verse in Isaiah 50 that I, I love. I put it there in your note sheet. Let me set it up. This is a verse that appears to be a verse about the servant of the Lord, the servant of Yahweh we talked about last week. It's a it's a, it's a prophetic passage. If you were to read this whole section of Isaiah, it's very clear. You know, they, they pulled out my beard. They spit upon me. They mocked me. They scourged my back. It seems to be very clear, a description, a prophetic uh, description of the servant of Yahweh, of the coming of the one who be the servant of Yahweh. But this is how the passage starts. 
it says, the sovereign Lord, remember, Lord, all caps is Yahweh. So the sovereign Yahweh has given me, so the Messiah is talking here, the servant of the Lord's talking here, he's given me an instructed tongue. In other words, he's taught me how to teach others. Uh, to know the word that sustains the weary, uh, how to encourage people. And catch what he says next. He said, he awakens me, what? Morning by morning, he wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. Do you see this picture? This picture of Messiah waking up and being taught. Morning by morning, an ongoing learning, growing process. Now, it's interesting. We don't know everything about first century education uh, in Israel. But many scholars believe um, that some of the patterns that we do know more about a century or so later were probably concurrent at the same time of Jesus. So I'm putting neon lights. I can't say this for sure, saying high likelihood. For example, when we go to Israel, we come to the city, uh, the town of Capernaum. There's a synagogue there that was built on the foundation of the synagogue when Jesus was teaching there. Right? So the, the upper ruins are second, third century, but the foundation basalt is from the time of Jesus, uh, where he would have taught there. And when we come there, um, our guide, who's an amazing guide, amazing, gifted, uh, just kind of really bright guy, masters in Middle Eastern um, history, and uh, knows the Bible like the back of his hand, but he will talk about Jewish education in the first century. And this is what he would say. Right? So I'm putting the lines. We don't... I don't know for sure this is right, but very likely. What you say is that, that in first century Israel, that when you were very young, as a young boy, you would go to school during the week. Now, let's go back to the story we started the day with, the picture of that young boy walking with his parents, and the story, that's Jesus, all right? So I want to picture him, I don't know, four or five years old, whatever it is, walking with his parents to the synagogue and often on the synagogue would be a room that'd be for educational purposes during the week, and he's walking into that room. Now, here's what our guy would say about education in Israel. He would say that, that when you come in, all education is based on the word. That's what this is about. And so you're going to study the Torah, the first five books of Moses. You're going to study the law and the prophets, and here's what, they're going to coordinate that with the weekend synagogue services. So the synagogue services every week would have a prescribed, like liturgy of every week you read part of the Torah, so you, the Torah, so you, so you read that every year, the whole Torah, and then you also read through the Law and the Prophets, so every three years you'd cover that. And so when you come to school that first day, they would have you uh, begin to write on your, the chalkboard or whatever boards they used, and here's what the rabbis would do, they would put honey on the words. And they would have these little boys lick the honey, which was a delicacy in that day, because they wanted to teach them that the word of God is sweeter than honey. And then they would begin to teach them the word, but not teach about the word, teach them the word. They would recite and have the students recite. So if I had my Hebrew Bible here, I'd, re I'd read that first line, but, you know, bear a sheet, and they'd just kind of re read that first line, and then they would recite the first line. And that's what they would do. They would learn the scripture. And then when they go to synagogue that weekend, guess what? That was the scripture they'd been learning all week. And when they'd finish a year of education, they'd come back again, and they'd start at Genesis 1-1. Bereshit, and they begin it again. And so by the time a child was 8, 9, 10 years old, they'd memorized much of the Torah and other passages. And so when Jesus was 12 years old at the temple, 
he's equipped to actually begin to discuss. So after that first stage of education, where you just learn the words, would come a second stage of education. As you get older, they begin to talk about what does it mean. Now, this really fits, right? It fits with what we're learning here. A life where Jesus is growing up in the small Jewish community, learning the word. At 12 years old, having learned so much of the word, but having questions, wanting to learn more, discussing. And then we go to Isaiah 50 as as the Messiah, morning by morning, being woken up, meditating on the word. Here's what I truly believe. I I believe that as Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days, very likely he he was meditating on the word that he memorized, very likely meditating on the book of Deuteronomy, which is where God's son was in the wilderness getting prepared to go to the promised land. It's exactly what he is, is God's son being prepared. He's meditating. So when Satan comes with the temptations, he's not going to a hard drive he was given. He's going back to the word that he's been knee deep in his whole life. And this is what we're going to see throughout his ministry, how many times his critics are going to come and ask a question or make a criticism, and Jesus is going to pull from his memory bank what he's learned. He's going to pull passages that are powerful, but often obscure, the most obscure passages, and say, this is what he said, well, why about this? Well, what about Isaiah? Well, what about when David came with the showbread? Well, what about this? Well, what about that? This, what about here in Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6? Well, what about this in Isaiah? And Isaiah spoke rightly about you. And it's just right there. And how is it right there? It's not because he has a hard drive in his brain. It's because he has spent his life thinking through a relationship with God, praying through that relationship, waking morning by morning, meditating on word. Father, will you teach me? And, and he begins to think through what they're, they're teaching about the Sabbath and what the Sabbath was about and what they're teaching about eating unclean things and what God's really concern is. And so when he comes time to teach and we get there in our, in our next series on the Sermon on the Mount, when he gets ready to teach, he's sharing from a lifetime of being bathed in the word and seeking his father to understand, and being woken morning by morning. And see, for Jesus, the word wasn't just the authority, how he made decisions. The word was his life. Let me ask you this. I think most of us in this room can probably relate to this. Probably most of us in this room can remember a time when you were sitting in a a message, whether it's here at Rocky Peak or somewhere else, where someone's teaching and you just felt like the word was speaking to you with power. You just felt like, hey, that was just for me. I don't know why everyone else even came today, but this was just for me. You probably had, the, you probably had that experience of reading the Bible on your own sometime when a word just comes off the page to you. It almost feels highlighted on the page. And you just sense God speaking to you. And when that happens, if you've had those kinds of experiences, you know what I'm talking about, that the word gives life. Remember what Jesus said? We can't live by bread alone. That's physical life. We need the spiritual. It comes from that the word gives life. When God speaks to you, it fires you up. When I'm reading the word and in Psalms, it says the unfolding of your word brings light. And when I'm reading the word and the word is unfolding for me, it fires me up. I can hardly sit still. I get so passionate about this, what I'm seeing, because all of a sudden, life gets clear. Uh, paths get clear. Direction is clear. You know who God is. You know who you are. You're coming alive. It's like this word is coming in your life, and it's infusing you with strength and confidence and courage. And it's just everything that we need. It's like we're feasting on the word. And if you've experienced that, you know that the word is not just our authority. Okay, I'll do it because the Bible says 
It's like, no, it's like Psalm 19. I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. You have released me. The unfolding of your word brings light. I love your word. I meditate on your word. Why? Because the word is our life. And for Jesus, it's not just like, okay, this is the right thing to do. I guess I need to do it. It's not like, okay, well, I haven't had my devotions this week. Better head for the hills. For Jesus, the word is his life. It's his conduit to its father. And as the father is opening up morning by morning the word, it's empowering his life. It's clarifying his calling. He's understanding what life is about. And he's going to come out in the power of the spirit. He's going to teach all of us his word, you see. And so the question I have for you is what priority level in your life is it studying, learning, memorizing, meditating on the Word? And let's just, again, right away, no guilt here. This is not about shame. I, I, we just have to understand how life works. If it's true that we cannot live on bread alone, that we need everywhere we need to hang, then, then we need to figure that out. And let me challenge you this. If you say, hey, but I've tried that, and it's boring, and I read it, and I don't understand it, or I'm not interested, then I'm, I'm just challenging you. You've got to push past that. Because the next question is why? Because I truly believe this. Our relationship with the word is a great thermometer of our relationship with the Lord. And so if the word is boring, something is wrong, and you can't let, just let it go like that. Something is wrong. That'd be like going to the doctor and saying your blood pressure is 180. You know, your pulse rate is a 125, and you go, oh, that's too bad. I guess it's just the way I am. No, no, if, if there's no hunger for the word, if the word is not speaking power in life to you, if it's not life-giving, then we need to figure out as a church why is that, because something is wrong. And again, not, not, not to shame, that's not the point, but I just don't want you to settle for something less than what's right. You were created for something amazing. God wants a, a relationship with you that's real and powerful, and the way he communicates is his word, and if his word is not speaking with power and grace and strength and light... If you're not experiencing that, you're not experiencing what you were created for. And so we need to stop just making excuses. We need to say, okay, so let's seek the Lord. And let's go before him as a church and say, God, why is this in my life? Is there some, is, is the reason that's true? Because I made decisions in my past to reject your word, and I'm just in the wilderness, and I've gotten so used to it because it's been 35 years. I think it's normal. Like, why, Jesus, is it like, why is my passion for the word not like your passion? Could you show me what, what that is? We just need to go before and be honest like a doctor and say, Jesus, I want to follow you. I've never seen this before. You are a learner. You are a grower. You passionate about the word. And so I'm not, and I'm going to follow you. That has to change. Can you show me and shepherd me what is the problem? Amen. Amen. All right, so how do you make your decisions? What's your authority base? What's your priority? Is the word a priority? Is it your life? I believe the Lord's going to shepherd us in this coming year in these areas. It's not the final time you're going to hear about this. Not because it's planned, but because we just sense it's coming. 
And I, I believe that this is a key to our future. And so I, I really believe the Lord is going to lead us back here throughout the coming year. And so this is a good day to start asking questions. This is a good day for you to start seeking and saying, is the word my life? Is it my life? And if it's not, you begin asking the question, Lord, why not? What's holding that up? Amen? Let's pray. Father, as we come before you as a church, we just want to be honest, radically honest. We want to come and I know we're coming from all different spots here. Some people are knee-deep in the Word. It is their life. It's their authority, and they're just fired up probably more than anyone else here today because they just know this truth themselves, and they so much want others to be able to experience that, and there's passion. There's probably others of us here that we haven't even come to you yet. We're just checking out Christianity. We're trying to figure out what this all means for us. There's others of us here that we would consider ourselves followers of Jesus, but honestly, there's not that hunger in our life, and so we're trying to figure out what that means, and so we just pray a lot as we, we come, as we worship, as we ask our questions, that you'd shepherd and lead us every step of the way, and you lead us to a place where we, um, like the psalmist says, we love your word um, because it leads to freedom, and so as we bring you our gifts, our offering, we pray that you'd meet us now as we pursue you, and we do pray, God, that you would speak that word fresh into our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me as we worship? And that's the question, whose words do we hang on? There's a song that Lynn and I listen to sometimes. One of the, one of the lines said that your voice is the loudest voice in my head. And the question is, whose voice is the loudest voice in our head? Is it God's voice and his word or is it some other voice? And the way we answer that question will determine our destiny because it determines when the crisis comes whether we make the wrong choice and go back to the desert or we move forward with Jesus into our future in the power of the Spirit. May we always be a people that are hanging on every word, not just in the sense of authority, but in the sense of life, that we live on his word. And may we experience his word and increasing power here as the Holy Spirit takes up his word and speaks it fresh to us increasingly as we listen and follow. May this be a week that uh, you listen and follow the word. My big challenge this week is not to go out and make big changes in the word. If God leads you, that's awesome. Follow him. My big challenge is simply to go before him. And if you don't have a passion for his word, it's simply because you're not hearing his voice through it. And so what I challenge you is just to start there and just to ask him, why is that happening? Why, why am I not hearing your voice and what needs to happen? Is there anything that I'm doing or have done that puts up a wall between hearing you speak through your word? So may this be a week where you listen and follow and where the word rises in our estimate that it would be the loudest voice in our head. Amen? God bless you guys. Have a great week.